1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. And today we're joined by Katarzyna Persson, who has a new book. It's called Warsaw Ghetto Police The Jewish Order Service During the Nazi Occupation, published by Cornell University Press and the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum 2021. Thanks so much, um, Kasha, for joining us today.
1: Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here.
2: So uh, we're today on New Books Network and New Books in Eastern European Studies, Jewish Studies, New Books History, and New Books Genocide Studies. A little bit about my guest today. So Dr. Katarzyna Persson is a historian specializing in the history of the Holocaust and its aftermath in occupied Poland. She is working in the Jewish Historical Institute in Warsaw, and she's also the author of Assimilated Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto, published by Syracuse University Press in 2014. So again, the new book today is is a translation, new translation into English. It's The Warsaw Ghetto Police, the Jewish Order's Service During the Nazi Occupation Cornell 2021. I really i am um, curious, if I may, uh, to ask a question about your motivation for studying violence. And uh, I understand uh, that you um, live and work in Warsaw. So maybe you could tell us about what motivated you to write the book.
1: Absolutely. Well, as you said, I am from Warsaw originally. I grew up in Warsaw. Uh, and Warsaw is a very uh, strange city in many ways. And it's a city which is steeped in history and especially um, legacy memory and often silence about the history of the Second World War. So I grew up surrounded by that, and this is uh, something that really interested me. You can't help but being interested uh, in history like that. Uh, so this really was what led me first to studying history, and then uh, to studying human behavior in history, and, and human behavior in very, very difficult circumstances. So uh, social history, uh, then social history of the Second World War, and and finally, of, uh, in this case, Warsaw Ghetto.
2: Yeah, and and I understand that you've also been involved with the Ringemblum Archive, Emmanuel Ringemblum. Could you tell our listeners who he is and how you um, came to be interested in this and all the curation and the research that that you've done with it?
1: Absolutely. Uh, This is something I'm really passionate about, so I would love to speak about it. And it's also something that became the main source for my, my book on the Warsaw Ghetto Police, so even more so. Um, I work and I've worked now for quite a few years as uh, the head of full publication of the Ringelm Archive uh, so the aim is to publish the entire Ringelm Archive in uh, first Polish, it's already being done almost finished, and then translate into English. So we translate documents from the archive from Polish and Yiddish mainly but also German Hebrew a little bit into English um, and it's progressing um, so we are very very proud of this, of this undertaking and uh, the Ringelm Archive for those of you who don't know, and I'm sure many people know it because it's becoming really increasingly well-known as one of the key sources for the uh, history of the Holocaust in Poland, for history of the Warsaw Ghetto, undoubtedly. Uh, It was uh, an archive which was set up by a historian and social activist, Emanuel Ringelblum, in uh, the autumn of 1940, so when the Warsaw Ghetto was uh, sealed off. And um, he set out to document... The story of the Warsaw Ghetto, but even more so, probably to provide future historians of of the Holocaust, future what wasn't then called Holocaust, but future historians of Jewish suffering during the war with appropriate sources. So basically, he began by building a source base, and that source base was extremely modern. Um, He took, he enlisted into the project a few dozen people and much more when we think about people who are just associating one way or another, it was an underground project was done clandestinely and uh, they began uh, very well thought through action of, of gathering sources. And the aim was to really gather as many sources as possible, but also um, documenting different aspects of social life in the in this new entirety, which was the Warsaw ghetto. Um, And, He was saying, and that was really, I think, his motto is that we're trying to show reality, however difficult it may be. So they weren't writing, you know, a story of heroism, even though heroism is really a large part of the archive Mm -hmm. because there were a lot of heroic people there. But he's also writing a story about destruction of the community. He's writing about the community, which is is suffering, about community, which is uh, about social ties which are being destroyed. He's writing about women and changing role of women and specific violence against women. He's writing about children, he's writing about families which are torn apart um, but he's also writing about the ghetto administration, about people who were at that point after the war considered to be quote-unquote collaborators by the community and what their motivations were and how complex the choices were. But he's also writing about the Jewish underground and those wonderful young people who later became mm-hmm. members of the uh, of the uh, Jewish fighting organizations and then carried out the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And then he's... Uh, so he's gathering documents, letters, um, official documentation, food ration cards, posters taken from the walls. Uh, they are writing diaries. He actually creates yeah. their own sources as well. It's also fascinating, you know, that he actually orders people who work for him to write the diaries at some point to document what's happening to them. Uh, he tries to enlist as different people as possible who can reach different parts of the society because the community is extremely complex, as we know, right? It's, People who are members of intelligentsia, people who are working class, people who are religious and not religious, Zionists and communists, and from all walks of life, and also from different parts of uh, of Poland, because and also Europe, increasingly because also Ghetto really becomes this place to which people are also deported from other communities. So he's trying mm. to reach them. He's trying to reach German Jews who are deported to uso Ghetto and get their stories. He's conducting oral history, oral history interviews in the most modern way we can think of. Uh, so this is like a really living and extremely, extremely modern way of thinking about history and a modern way of, you know, perceiving writing history as well. So this is mm-hmm. what the archive is. Is yeah. uh, But it's also much more than that. I know I'm talking a lot, yeah, but I'm really, yeah. really into it. Uh, because what he does is that after he starts, after they gather this amount of sources, they, they start writing history. They actually... Set out to write uh, our own history, as as, as they say, um, Jewish history. The Jewish history which will be written by Jews, right? And this is very important for them that their own history won't be written by Poles, won't be ha- written by Germans. It'll be written by Jews. And and they're writing Jewish history of the of the ghetto. Again, looking at the most difficult topics, they set out to do it, but they never finish it because, of course, situation changed, politics change, and Action Reinhard begins. Uh, mm-hmm. And the situation in Warsaw ghetto becomes dire and much more difficult, uh, and there is increasing information coming to Warsaw about the murder of uh, of, uh, yeah. of of communities, and they start spreading the world about what's happening, um, mm-hmm. and then the ghetto's the the archive is hidden, um, it's hidden the first part in metal boxes and. Uh, yeah. The milk uh,
2: bottles, right? <laughs> and yeah, the second they're... part
1: actually milk chains, which is fascin- I'm, I'm actually, I'm fascinating. Everything is fascinating, but this is really all fascinating story. Um, the first part is re- is in metal boxes. The first part is hidden in December of forty two, and then unearthed in forty six, and is very much destroyed because those metal boxes don't really keep hold very well. You know, they don't. There's quite a lot of water that got in. Uh, the second part, which is hidden in um, early nineteen forty three, is unearthed. Four years later in 1950, but it's in much, much better condition because it was, not as you said, in milk churns, which are actually hermetically sealed and uh, the documents were uh, much, much less destroyed. So uh, yeah. these are documents, amazing sources, also incredible artifacts and also sources for, for memory and for uh, of very, very often the only trace of existence of people whose names are written down there.
2: Right. I guess, you know, the other question I have for you, Kasia, is um, in terms of your arrangement of the book and the content and the 10 chapters, I, I mean, people who are traveling traveling to Warsaw and who are interested, especially at a higher level of doing research, um, they might think of the Umschlagplatz and, and Operation Reinhardt and so forth. But I, I'm struck throughout the book by your chronicle and your chronology and how you tell the story of the Jewish Order Service in, in Warsaw and its role in relation to the German administration and the Judenrat and the Blue Police. Could, could you outline that for us? Um, what was the Jewish Order Service and then, and then what drew you to arrange the, the content of the book in the way that you did?
1: Well, my aim was really to take a topic which we all know so well in a way because we all know about the Jewish police, the quote-unquote collaborators who are on the Umschlagplatz and are putting people on trains to to death camps. Uh, that was That's the story of the of the Jewish order service that's known. That's also part of uh, strongly to this day of anti-Semitic propaganda. And that was one of the reasons why I wrote that book as well is to what extent this is. This memory is misused constantly for various reasons. Uh and uh, what I wanted to do is really to show how it developed and how it's it's very, very uh, complex and uh, different, I would say. So uh, I begin at the beginning. Uh, I looked at the, the setting up of the Jewish police and Jewish police or the Jewish order service because it actually was officially the Jewish order service to underline its, uh, all the duties in the ghetto. It's set up at the same point when the ghetto is set up. And this is not just in Warsaw, this is also in other larger, medium-sized ghettos, but also sometimes small ghettos. And mm-hmm. um, its aim is to really, well, it has two aims, um, which are interplaying, and, and the interplay between the two aims is quite important. The first one is just to keep order in the ghetto. The ghetto's sealed off, right, in the case, case of Warsaw. There's no mm-hmm. Germans coming in, there's no Poles coming in, at least officially. Uh, it's now a Jewish, quote-unquote, autonomous quarter with the Jewish again quote unquote which we know of course is completely false but that's the yeah propaganda I want to ask about that,
2: that. yeah mm-hmm. yeah uh,
1: so we have this false vision of a Jewish quarter which is Jewish ruled quote unquote by the Judenrat, the Jewish council uh, and and this is of course part of the division of the society and right putting people in different roles within the conquered uh, conquered society and then, we have the quote-unquote Jewish police, which is the equivalent of a Polish police outside the ghetto. Uh, so it's, a, it's an order service in every way. So its aim is to keep order in the ghetto. So to regulate traffic, for example, to make sure that the sanitary conditions are being met, to um, uh, deal with petty crime and so on, like mm. to oversee the ghetto prison at some point once it's being set up. Then, of course, also to stand uh, by the entrances to the ghetto and to guard the walls. Uh, so all those, we could say, policing duties, but on top of it, we have also duties which are um, uh, which are put, out, put on by, by German orders. So it actually has to carry out German orders in the ghetto. Uh, and these are really the duties for the lens of which the Jewish order service perceived. And this is the duties because of which the society hates them so much because they are... Mm-hmm. Uh, they blame them for what is really ordered and what they have to do and have no choice in carrying out. And the most difficult of these, I mean, the most, there are many of them. There is, for example, um, taking different types of, uh, of taxes or collecting different types of taxes for different things. That's one of them. Uh, carrying out sanitation actions, so-called sanitation actions, which are really extremely cruel ways of, again, quote, I use quote-unquote, but it's fighting typhus. It doesn't really fight typhus, mm-hmm. even if anything. Leads to spreading it even worse, uh, and uh, catching for forced labor camps. That's really the worst of it because uh, forced labor camps, which sound maybe not innocent, but you know don't sound so bad, are actually horrific uh, camps which are set up in uh, which are set up in order to to carry out unbelievably difficult and hard forced labor people who come back if they come back from forced labor are uh, broken physically and mentally very often
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, they are Mm -hmm.
1: really can't really function often very well after after coming back Uh, and they also because these are aimed at young men uh, they often leave behind their families without any any help any way of of making a living in the ghetto so this is something really leads to the destruction of the of, of whole family unions if someone has to go to a forced labor camp so they mm-hmm. really become the "quote-unquote" catchers for uh, for forced labor as well,
2: right? I, I guess you know I'm so interested in your sources and, and how you gather the evidence and combine um, memoir literature. You know, sort of the, the famous um, memoirs. And you mentioned the archive, but there's also Adam Chanyakov and, and Stanislav Adler. Are there other sources that that you're reading? say, newspapers in order to tell the story forward from 1939 through 1941. And, and of course, you know, one of the big arguments I, I see is that the group of the Jewish order police is, is not as homogenous as, as people think. I mean, sometimes in post-war memory, they're, they're remembered as non-Jews or assimilated Jews or, or something like that. Um, so I guess, how, how do you go about telling new, a new story or maybe even a sort of revision um, type story in your chapters?
1: Well, my aim really was, as I said, to avoid looking at the Jewish order service only for the uh, prism of the Umschlagplatz, only for the prism of what happened there. And in order to do so, I had to use sources which were created before the Umschlagplatz, so which were created before deportations. Um, and as I said, I was extremely lucky to have Ringelmark at my disposal and, and be able to use those documents because... Uh, And we're lucky because they're all available now and also online uh, because they are uh, an unbelievably interesting source. And as I said, Ringelman actually made a conscious, fully conscious decision to write also about difficult aspects of life in the ghetto. So someone Mm -hmm. like him who had a very negative view of the Jewish order service, of the Jewish police, enlists people, at least two people from the Jewish order service, from the Jewish police into the archive. They gather for him various documents from the police which are in the archive which include um, documents especially created for the archive, such as interviews with the with the Jewish policemen, such as uh, uh, diaries or the reports written by them, but also other documents such as official documentation from the service, um, various uh, internal documents and, uh, and others. So we have quite a large number of documents related to the service in one way or another in the archive. Um, but also service is constantly mentioned in other documents, even those which don't n- deal with it because it was such an important part of social life in the ghetto and uh, something that people really try to to deal with in one way or another. Um, they try to deal with their existence. They try to understand it and cope with those growing divisions within the community which are caused by general policy. So, for example, um, you said about the thing about, about them being assimilated, that was, of course, one of the key coping mechanisms, right? Is that we right. think when we have people within our community who act against us, or so we perceive them as acting against us, or acting in a way which we don't see as fit um, of members of the community, we, of course, can say that they are uh, not really members of the community. In this case, they're not really Jews, and they're not really Jews because they're assimilated, which we know it's mm-hmm. not true, because they were not all assimilated, but uh, you know, there's the whole narrative which came appeared in in already in the ghetto, and I think it's also interesting that those coping mechanisms with those divisions within the community already appeared there because we usually associate them with postwar memory and the community dealing with traumatic past and everything. But it's already happening there. Those beginnings of those uh, of those divisions and of you know, trying to conceptualize, but also trying to think about what we're going to do with those people after the war. Is already happening in the in the ghetto. So the discussion about post war courts, where Jewish policemen will be standing and where they'll be tried, is already happening during the war. I think it's it's absolutely fascinating.
2: Hmm. Hmm. And how how do you cover the personnel? So you have a lot of names, and, and there are a lot of names of, of of people you know in getting the kind of Alltagsgeschichte within the walls of the ghetto before it's sealed. So whom do you whom do you aim to spotlight and why i mean what are the questions that you're most interested in in terms of everyday behavior and, and as you mentioned this very sort of practical element of, of navigating especially among the, the the duties of the police members and, and functionaries the
1: natural people who um this is to a large degree based on what source available? So, we do have policemen who left diaries behind uh, or who left different writings either during a archive or who kept diaries, it's a difficult word, but let's say memoirs written in hiding, uh, already still during the war. So, we have their writings. of Adler is one of them. He's, uh, his writing was actually translated into English, so it's best known undoubtedly uh, from mm-hmm. the Warsaw Ghetto, but there's also Gombiski who was uh rec- no, quite recently published in Polish and um uh, and many others whose uh, writings are uh, in the archive in Poland Israel. So they um so we have those. They really become the natural leaders of the story because they they wrote and and even if their writing is not very self-reflective, even if it's uh yeah. written from a very strong defense position, um uh, even if we know that they're really keeping things to themselves, even you know they still Write hundreds of pages, and if we sit swift, let me if we get through it, if we look for certain information, I think we can, we can find them too. So that's the one group of stories, leaders mm-hmm. of the stories. Then the other ones are su- ones which appear sort of a bit haphazardly, and these are people who simply someone wrote about. Someone was writing about his cousin, mm-hmm. the Jewish police, or friend or brother, yeah,
2: family family members, right? Family members it's- usually,
1: yes. Uh, trying to explain his actions uh, or mentioning him. Uh, and uh, then those people also are, are part of the story. And then finally, you have people who are simply well known. So people who are um, who are in the leadership of the service and about whom we know a lot about. And um, undoubtedly, the key person here was was Sharinsky, who was the the head of the Jewish Order Service. Can I talk about him?
2: Yes, I, I wanted to ask a couple of questions about about him. So, I mean, there is an impression about him that that you get from the diarist. What is your impression of him from all of the sources as you combine them?
1: I'm absolutely fascinated by him, but I think you do get fascinated by people you spend a lot of time with. And he's he was an incredible person. I mean, who, who, be interesting. who was he?
2: Who, who who was he for our listeners? Um, Where did he come from? He was,
1: was uh, his, first of all. Um, for those, uh, I mean, the key aspect of of his life for his future in the ghetto was that he was a convert. So he came from a Jewish family, he converted at some point, and we don't know when exactly. And uh, he made a career in in the Polish state police before the war, which would be very, very rare for someone uh, who had a Jewish background. He was, um, and he really went up the ranks very, very quickly and very successfully, which is interesting because he wasn't very well-educated. Uh, he didn't have a particularly impressive uh, army background either, military background, uh, but he was he was really going up the ranks and um, he was uh, very successful on many levels. And we have quite a lot of, uh, we actually know quite a lot about him because he kept a scrapbook. You know, he had this sort of mm-hmm. book where he was putting his articles or articles referring to him, uh, which was then deposited in the archive by, by his fa- surviving family members. So we do like, you know, we have a, Think readily for a disposal and he uh, uh, so he was like he was really successful he was putting together quite a few things that create a successful policeman we may say so first mm-hmm. of all he was a uh, very detail orientated I would even mm-hmm. say boring he wrote mm-hmm. those unbelievably boring articles about functioning of the police detailing different laws and different uh, regulations and I think he was even a co-author of of, um, sets of regulations as well. So, you know, those things that like really mundane details regarding functioning of the the police, that's one thing. The second one was that he was at the same time, he was a very good writer. And you can see that he really could relate very well to regular policemen. So if you think about regular policemen in in Poland, People in small villages or in small towns with usually little education, uh, and and he was extremely good at getting through to them. He was writing um, extensively again. He was writing a lot. Uh, he was writing those articles in which he was describing to them um, everyday f- everyday life. So like for example, hygiene, what hygiene should be kept by by by, by police? How they should be uh, how should they be carrying out searches to make sure that they they upkeep the hygiene standards and not get sick or uh, and things like that you know different aspects of everyday police life like really mundane police life but he was writing in a really lively language it was published in uh, police newspapers which were aimed at uh, and newsletters and, and uh, newspapers which were aimed at, at uh, policemen which were distributing among police members of the police um, so he really like you can see that he really could get in touch with them very easily and and really could communicate very well so that's mm-hmm. another side of him and then the third side which is also interesting is that he was he must have been quite charismatic he was uh, the first spokesman of the Polish state police the first ever person elected taking over the position of a spokesman um mm-hmm. he had very good friends very high up he was really best friends with uh, the the highest um, the members of the of the highest um uh, Police for you know police officers and actually Polish underground robot during the war, that's how he apparently survived and, and uh, survived to begin with and then got a job in the uh, in the Warsaw Ghetto, but he was definitely friends with those people who uh, who are very, very high up. He was uh, very active in social life. He was going to cafes and restaurants. Uh, he was written about in gossip columns. Um, mm-hmm. So he sort of combined all of all of these to to really create a very successful career for himself. Mm-hmm. And, and he's living like that until September 1949 and then the war starts. Uh, and what do you do if you're a, a
2: yeah, policeman? Yeah. And if
1: everybody knows you're Jewish, that also doesn't help. Uh, because, right. of course, everybody knew that. And he was, uh, because by uh, by uh, wartime laws, he was Jewish, the fact that he converted into matter. Um, mm-hmm. He worked apparently as a clerk. He used, according to Polish underground reports, help from, from all those uh, former policemen. And then at that point, Members of the Polish police, the so-called blue police, quite a lot. He relied on the help, and then suddenly he finds himself in the Warsaw ghetto, and um, he becomes the head of the uh, of the new Jewish order service. Uh, he's suddenly a Jew, you know. He's he's Jewish. He's close in the ghetto. Um, he is a. Uh, and he's creating this service, which is meant to serve the community, which he knows nothing about, and a community which is really pretty hostile towards him. Not only as a mm-hmm. policeman, Jewish policeman, but also as a convert, uh, he surrounds himself with people he trusts, and that's also wh- how this image of, of the ghetto police as an assimilated service comes from. You know that he, that's understandably,
2: yeah, yeah, he doesn't I know anyone. Mm-hmm. He has no,
1: you know, he's no links to the community. So he right. tries to surround himself with people he may relate to. So these are usually lawyers, usually assimilated lawyers, uh, people who are uh, more so part of the Polish rather than before the war of the Jewish community. There's also not very many, but also some converts as well. So people mm. he might have known from before the war or he might easily sort of relate to. Um, and somehow together they, they create this Jewish service and he's doing it... Uh, from scratch right he's enlisting people who have no experience whatsoever in in police force have often very little army experience either who are not used to the regime of uh, of being in a police force in this very difficult environment very difficult work and he has to somehow create a police force out of them uh that really is extremely interesting
0: this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real pos you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it makes me think of Christopher Browning's work and and, and others on um, auxiliaries and, and their roles and how they see the world, whether reflectively or unreflectively. Um, I, I guess, I, you know, I wanted to ask a question about the spatial order of all of this, because I think, you know, your book is so rich in detail um, in reconstructing the, the detention center on, on Gensha Street and, and the precincts. Could you say a few words about how how you understand the role of functionaries on the territory, on the turf of the ghetto? And- how this was organized and, and perhaps how it, how it dictated behaviors and, and choices?
1: Well, this is uh, a closed, I think, when it comes to the specialty of it, it is a closed, closed space. Uh, they suddenly find themselves in a closed space, and they have to carry out duties which they don't really know anything about. Uh, a large number of them, like Shariński, suddenly become part of the community they don't really know very well. They have to uh, navigate their way through it as well. Uh, there is a lot of non-spatial studies of the ghetto as well, and and this whole dynamics of being on a ghetto street in the in, in unbelievable overcrowding, in this uh, crowd Hy- of
2: hygiene, disease, you know, everything.
1: absolutely hunger, people dying. We have to remember, and there's often forgotten that hundred thousand people almost died in the Warsaw ghetto before the deportations even begin. Uh, so uh, that's a lot of people dying of hunger and typhus, and often dying inside, in plain sight. You know, dying on the streets, or their bodies are uh, taken out of the houses and left on the streets. So death is everywhere. This is a really traumatic. On top of everything that's happening to them, this environment itself is extremely difficult. And and Jewish police are those people, members of the Jewish police, who can't stay at home. You know, they can't. If right. there's anybody who could pretend that this is not happening around them, and there's many people like that. You know they have to they have to walk the streets every day and especially those who are lower rank they have to carry out everyday policing duties um, like uh, like everybody else and uh, when it comes to spaces again is, it's interesting to see see what spaces they become associated with uh, the uh, the central arrest in Argentia uh, is of course one of those places it's a Jewish arrest which is being or what detention center which is which is being set up but we also have to think about spaces such as bars and restaurants which are in the ghetto and there's not many of them they're extremely visible against the poverty of the ghetto streets but these mm-hmm. are really the places which the police is being associated with these are the places where they meet up after uh, in the evenings where they drink together where the bonds are tightening when they compare how much they took in bribes uh, when this and if we think where this spiral of violence is really uh, beginning, starting and when it's really getting quicker, I think it's in those places. I think it's in the evenings. And uh, we have some really insightful um, thoughts from uh, members, of, members of family members of the Jewish police who really describe it really well, how you know they have friends and, and they go out and, and they sit in those bars and they drink and they try to forget about what's happening and what they had to carry, what duties they had to carry out. And this is really where the this unity of, of uh, is is beginning because, um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: what is incredibly important and uh, which is in stark contrast to what Christopher Browning is writing about and those study of auxiliary units and other units, of course, is that this is not happening on the front. This is happening within, yeah, yeah, yeah. their direct environment, right? So um, they are yeah. all living at home and. Uh, they all have family members around them and they all have neighbors and they all have friends and they all have parents and grandparents sometimes, and you know, so they have all extended networks within the, which they function and then they have the police network. So they part of two networks, which may be very different uh, and how this really influences them, how the decisions are not only influenced by alcohol, by growing violence, by more and more brutal duties, which are put on them, uh, by the brutality of life around them, which is also influencing the shifting uh, borders of acceptable behavior and so on so on, but also how it's influencing, but the wife was waiting at them for, for them at home, how it's influenced mm-hmm. by the children, how it's influenced whether they care or not care what the neighbor think about thinks about them, you know, and it all mm-hmm. matters. That's why it's such an interesting story.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm intrigued by how you, um, create these characters who, who to me always seem more like monsters, like me, it's just um, especially, you know, in this divide between the kind of pre deportation period. And then when operation Reinhardt, uh, begins, you know, and we get to July and, and August and beyond, um, I guess this is a larger question for you about the moral economy and, and, crimes and corruption, especially, you know, instances of sexual violence and so forth. Um, do you, do you think in studying the Jewish order service and, and, and keeping in mind the impressions of, of people like Ringelblum that the understanding of behavior should be judged, should be condemned um, I, I guess this is really hard as a historian, you know, not to get drawn in, into the story, both, both emotionally and let's say ethically. Uh, how, how did you go about that? I, I think, you know, as a historian, especially with, with such extensive knowledge now of the evidence.
1: I didn't really. I think I, I tried to escape it as much as I could. And uh, I, I didn't, I don't know. You know, I, was, I had lots of problems about writing the chapter on the Umschlagplatz. I had a lot of problems writing about deportation actions. Uh, And uh, this issue of judgment uh, is is very difficult because at the same time, we can't take away from people the right to judge and people judge them. Ringelblum writes horrible things about Jewish order service. Uh, And sometimes when we look at them today, we think this is really unfair. Uh, From today's perspective, knowing what choices they faced, knowing what circumstances they were in, Knowing how pe- how many people they had support, knowing what their options were, we, I would say, in many cases, would not if we were to pass judgment. Whether we are allowed to is another completely different story. But should we be passing judgment, we would probably, from today's perspective, not pass it like that. Ringelblum did, people in the you ghetto sh- did, they sure. had a right to, you know. Um, and uh, navigating through those for uh, those judgments was a very difficult part of uh, of my writing, and of course even more so when we look at the stories which were written uh, after the war. So memoirs written after the war are written from the perspective of what happened in are written from the perspective of people whose, for those who survived the Warsaw Ghetto. We assume the vast, vast majority of the, those closest to them was murdered in Treblinka. And, you know, they were taken, the Umschlagplatz, among others, by the Jewish police. Uh, they are extremely personally involved in that story and... We can't take away from them the judgment. You know, we can't say, "Look, right. the story is actually much more complex than you think," because you're blinded by uh, by pain. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, yeah, ethically, yeah. it was a very difficult issue to uh, to navigate. I was trying to avoid, I can't judgment, but I was. I think what I, I tried to do really throughout the book is what, to show the full story. That was the main issue. So to show it from the very beginning, not start the plot, but start somewhere completely different and uh, show how they changed, show what influenced them, show what their options were, what choices they could or could not make, uh, what choices they thought they could make, um, how what happened around them influenced them, and uh, and then get to the Umstruckplatz as well and, and show that uh, as objective, mm-hmm. let's say, as possible.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued by... Um... I think it's Kalel Perehodnik, And I wonder if you could say a few words about him. I mean, this is, you know, a policeman and in his diary, even though he he's not Im- immediately there, I guess, in the ghetto. Uh, how, how do you read policemen's understanding of their own ambitions and careers and, and duties and, and including committing crime, committing murder? Um, how, how did like, you get at that? Um,
1: the diary of Kalel is fascinating and it's, I think if I was to recommend one reading, this is really one of the, definitely, and I'm not talking only about the Jewish police, I think when it comes to the Holocaust, it's one of the most hard-hitting sources and and diaries. Uh, Calec Perhodnik is a policeman in Otford's ghetto in a town outside Warsaw who is uh, putting his own wife and child on the train, Treblinka, his daughter, and then writes about it, uh, writes his confession afterwards. Uh, and he's trying to, I don't think if anything explain his actions, I think he's trying to just grasp what, what happened and, and how is he still alive and trying mm. to, I don't know if I understand, I think confess it. I think it's a confession yeah. above death, all.
2: Death, deathbed. It, it feels like a deathbed, you know.
1: It is a, a deathbed, absolutely, because he knows, he's can expect he dies. I mean, he doesn't survive till the end of the war. Uh, the Darius survives in hiding. And uh, it's an extremely hard hitting text. Um, but uh, we don't have a text like this from the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, they, uh, those policemen who did leave the, the writings were extremely cautious in what they were writing about. Uh, these sometimes like third person reports, they, they, write, they, they often go for hundreds of pages and not short text, mm. but it's more them at that point in hiding, because that's where the majority of text I was using actually, other than, than those which are in the Ringel- Ringelmark archive. Um, those which deal with the deportation actions were usually written in hiding after uh, before the end of the war, but uh, when they were trying to survive, uh, and they're really trying to construct different statements. Uh, and uh, they are preparing. I mean they are preparing for uh, for being judged. They are judged already at that point, and they are trying to write their side of the story. Uh, they're trying to explain what happened and uh, they often don't write about themselves often basically always when it comes to also ghetto they write about about the service they sometimes to describe the place in it they describe its functioning these are also quite dry texts and like only mm. every now and again we have this glimpse of emotion when they're trying mm-hmm. to get the mm-hmm. reader to explain to understand uh, and they actually directly address the reader and say can you just please try to understand what's happening here right um, and uh they're also trying to, they address the reader who was in the ghetto and the reader who wasn't, and, uh, you know, they're trying to say, can you try to understand what life in the ghetto was like? Uh,
0: mm-hmm. So these
1: are really the most striking little bits when they're trying to really, you know, put the, yeah. the point across. Um, and, and the defense line which they used were often the same ones which they used after the war because they did stand trial. They were judged, they were tried by their own community as traitors, as collaborators, considered to be collaborators. Which again is not probably a term we would use today. Understandably, today we look at it differently because we look at them as people facing death, but uh, they were judged very harshly by, by their own community after the war.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I sort of like imagine the moment in a police procedural that never happens, where the, the policeman, you know, who who actually conducts brutality, then turns to the audience and breaks the wall and says, "I did this. You know, I'm a murderer. I did this." And, and I guess, you know, this is so complicated in your story because it, it deals with those classic questions in Holocaust historiography about perpetration and collaboration and, and bystanding that, that we get, you know, at least from from Raul Hilberg and and, and Chris Browning and, and some others. And so, you know, I'd, I'd like to ask you, um, well, I have you on the line for our listeners, if you could tell us maybe what you see as as um, interesting and and productive in the future for understanding these big questions of, of Holocaust history. And especially in the the research, as you say about the scales of ghettos, whether they're, they're large or medium or small.
1: I think, yes, this is the question of scale and the question of getting out of Warsaw and getting out of Łódź, even though there's still so much to do in Warsaw and Łódź and Krakow, but, um, looking at different ghettos, which are set up at different times, uh, Understanding how those societies function, uh, how they function if this is a very small community, and how they function if they're bigger. How those emotions, which are so strong in wars already, you know how much stronger they are if we talk about a much smaller community where it's really uh, what Natalia lection referred to as intimate violence, like truly intimate violence. You know this is really neighbor against neighbor. Um, mm-hmm. It's much more personal where the murder is also a uh, different carried out differently, especially when we talk about those ghettos which are set up after the summer of 1941. So um, I think the fact that we are now going sort of eastwards and looking at those ghettos set up more the east, uh, those which are uh, occupied in those territories occupied after the summer of 1941, where they function very differently, and the Jewish police also functions that differently, is really widening our... uh, our knowledge not only about this, but also about you know the basics of of functioning of a community under such incredible incredible strain and and dealing with it, and of course also there's an issue of uh, which we didn't talk about much, but about the Polish police and the Polish neighbors, right? And, and right. the German presence on lack of presence more more often so of Germans and, and how does this dynamic work here? Uh, so this is truly uh, truly fascinating, and then then the memory and the use and misuse of, of memory and, and how it's remembered within those small communities. It's all fascinating. And there's so much yeah. to do still thing.
2: And, and, and I want to make sure that we're not just treating it as a Polish question either, because I think within your book, it's, it's fascinating to me how you reconstruct the relationship to, to German authorities and, and even, you know, sort of like German soldiers um, could you could you say a few words about that again, you know, for our listeners who want to understand the relationship between the Warsaw ghetto police and and the blue police and and ultimately um, German sort of German structures? I mean, how, how do you conceive of that in the narrative and then ultimately in the post-war story of of the of the courts and, and of guilt and punishment?
1: This, again, is a fascinating story, because in case of Warsaw, Warsaw is a bit specific and a bit different, maybe. Than other large ghettos, because there's very often very little, I won't say very little, there isn't. The German Jewish Order Service is set up by the German authorities to carry out the orders in that sense. But in terms of direct contact, there's a bit more of direct contact with the Polish police. It's the Polish police that's more visible on ghetto streets. And that's purely because of Sharinsky, because Sharinsky, as the Mm. head of the the Jewish Order Service, has extremely strong personal links. With those people who are the, in the leadership of the Polish state police before the war in Warsaw and automatically become the leadership and enlisted with a forcefully enlisted at that point uh, to lead the blue police in uh, uh or the Polish police in uh after during the war. So his personal links to them really in this case are crucial and so they are in other ghettos. I mean, there are also other ghettos when such situations are taking place, but there are others. When German structures and German authorities have much more to say because of a different composition of the Jewish order service, but here it's much the links b- the, between uh, the Jewish order service and the Polish blue police are much stronger. Uh, so this is a specific of a uh, specific aspect of, uh, of Warsaw. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, in Warsaw as well as we know in Warsaw ghetto, German. Uh, Members of the German administration, Germans, are not really seen on the street. They're seen by the entrance, to the ghetto, but they're not present in ghetto life. This mainly, of course, is because of prevalence of typhus and wars of ghetto, and uh, but also for other reasons, they they're not really there. The German, the Jewish order service, really takes upon itself the hatred of the society because they carry out the duties which are uh, which would normally be carried out by Germans, such as uh, such as um, taking people to forced labor camps, and. Uh, they only really appear on the streets in, in the spring of 1942, when there are first murders, uh, which are carried out in Warsaw Ghetto by by, uh, by the Germans, uh, and then of course uh, during the deportation actions. Um, but uh, it is really, I think, fascinating when we talk about this about how little, how this all mm-hmm. le- leads to lack of information, how little people know in, in Warsaw. And it also, mm-hmm. I think, affects us, our view of, of, of the Jewish Order Service, because they don't know, you know, nobody knows. Right,
2: right, right. And I guess, you know, do you see in, in scholarship, you know, given the initial silence or immediate silence about the role of, of, of police immediately after the war, after 1945, I mean, what are some of the changes that, that you now see, again, you know, as someone who, who's working in Warsaw and, and working at the Jewish Historical Institute in the questions that are being asked because now there's such a rich amount of um, primary evidence sources. You mentioned the Ringelblum Archive, I think at multiple volumes now available. So what are, what are some of the questions being asked um, given the trauma and, you know, sort of given the, the history of violence and suicide? What do you see changing in, in the world of historiography and scholarship, say, since the 90s?
1: Well, we undoubtedly can ask different questions now because we have different sources. Uh Ringo Markov is now available. It's also gradually being translated to English. It's also transcribed, which is an important thing because it was yeah preserved in a very bad condition, right? The handwriting is almost illegible in many documents, both Yiddish and Polish. If anybody can write in barely illegible Yiddish handwriting, you know, I, this source was basically unavailable to scholars for many, many years. Now it's all being transcribed. It's being translated um people can actually use it so we can now see we can now look at various aspects of social history which we weren't able to to use before because those uh, for many reasons those uh, uh those uh, topics were either not spoken of or were silenced uh, by by different sources after uh, after the war so we can finally do that uh, and i think this is of course not just related the holocaust is related to any aspect of civilian suffering during the war, which we finally discussing openly, right? This is not just the issue mm-hmm. of the Jewish history of uh, of suffering during the Second World War, but why much more, much more widely, of, of civilian sufferings during during war and rape and sexual violence and mm-hmm. uh, specific experiences of children and so on, and so on. All those uh, topics can be now discussed, and they can be also discussed in in context of the Holocaust, and they are being discussed mainly thanks to the, uh, to the sources which are not available. And the issue of, again, quote-unquote collaboration, right, or whatever we call it, mm-hmm. but uh, that's the term that was used immediately after the war, how it was used for many years, uh, and the complexities of it and various aspects affecting it, which is, again, not just related, not just you know part yeah. of the uh, history of the Holocaust, but much wider of uh, communal uh, involvement in crimes coming during the Second World War. Is also something that is now being uh, yeah. discussed.
2: I, I mean, I see, I see so much that can be done. This is my own sort of personal way of getting at it, but I, I'm thinking of 2020 and and the role of police and, and arguments, you know, about funding and defunding police and the role that that functionaries play and and sometimes, in a in a narrow sense or in a broader sense, about duties and and being cogs in the wheel and. Uh, certainly one can see that in a lot of literature that's coming out in, in Israel, you know, about prisoner functionaries and trials and things like that as well. So I, I wanted to ask that as a as next question, really, since we're winding down now here at, at Nubix Network, Kasha, if I may, um, could you possibly suggest for, for our readers um, and, and listeners, um, some of, the current research and authors, you mentioned Natalia Alexiun and her work on intimate violence. I'll, I'll be interviewing her as well. Um, I had Anna Haikova and Senia Betke and, and others. Um, do you have in mind some some books and some uh, things that others who are interested in the topic might read?
1: Absolutely. There's more and more research, uh, especially coming uh, in, in Israel regarding the so-called the wave of KAPO trials and uh, the general search for justice and retribution after the war. It's also something that I'm really interested in right now. Uh, and that's so- definitely a field that's growing very fast. Uh, if I had, if I also suggest one book, I think Dalej is not, which is a Polish uh, book, uh, which I think is coming out in English now, uh, is a, definitely the most widely discussed uh, book relating to the Holocaust in Poland. Uh, mm. And uh, one that awoke a lot of controversy and 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 discussion in Poland, and I think, but also sure. uh, it's not only about the stories they tell, but also about and this is something I'm particularly interested in the use of post-war sources, post-war trials, communal mm. memories uh, to reconstruct uh, wartime history, because this is something that I'm also uh, I'm also doing, especially the use of uh, of post-war um, judicial documents to reconstruct. The story of the Second World War. I do it mainly um, using Jewish honor codes. In this case, it's more Polish state codes, but uh, I think this is a field that's growing really quickly and it's really fascinating. I think that it's also fascinating how in those judicial documents you can see how post-war history affects uh, uh, wartime history and how it's all interlinked, especially in those fascinating immediate post-war years when there's still uh, so much turmoil happening. Mm-hmm.
2: And, and so, you know, finally, um, if you would talk about your current project and current research, I um, know that you're interested in the post-war period. What are your driving questions? And uh, I guess, how, you know, are, are you communicating um, the bigger questions that you've been asking about violence and about Polish-Jewish history and the Holocaust and Shoah?
1: It's still very much linked to it. I'm now looking at post-war search for retribution and different spaces in which retribution was sought in post-war Poland by Polish Jews, by those returning to Poland and by those who survived in Poland, how they tried to get justice for what happened to them in different ways, uh, using courts or doing it personally, how they envisaged revenge, how they envisaged retribution, what story it played in the way which they in which they talked about their... Uh, experiences, post-war experiences, and the stories they told after the war. Uh, so this is really, yes, about transform about justice immediately after the war and trying to find the justice for crimes for which justice can't really be found.
0: Hmm.
2: Well I thank you, you know, for giving me so much to think about uh, and for our listeners here at New Books Network as well. Um, we have been speaking with Dr. Katarzyna Persson and her book is called Warsaw Ghetto Police the Jewish Order Service during the Nazi occupation this is now available in english and it's uh, available with cornell university press with the us holocaust memorial museum in washington dc published in 2021 thank you kasha it's it's been so enjoyable and really for spending time with us uh, on this podcast today
1: thank you thank you
2: And again, I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here at New Books in Eastern European Studies, New Books in Jewish Studies, New Books Genocide Studies, and at New Books Network. Until next time.